Cybernetics attempts to find the common elements in the functioning of automatic machines and of the human nervous system, and to develop a theory which will cover the entire field of control and communication in machines and living organisms. Dr. Norbert Weiner, writing in the Scientific American. Taken slightly less literally, in communist Russia, central planners sought to do just that by describing the sprawling Soviet economy as a unified set of equations, all sharing a set of inputs and outputs, they believed they could efficiently plan and organize production to catch up and overtake their capitalist rivals. For a while, it appeared to be working, with annual increases in GDP surpassing all Western nations in the 1950s and 60s. By the 1970s, however, diminishing returns had clearly set in, with even admitted growth rates plummeting leading to the USSR swallowing its pride in importing grain from America, saved arguably only by rising oil prices that enabled it to earn the foreign currency it needed to make up for its production shortfalls. With the microcomputer revolution taking hold in the 1980s, Soviet economists hoped the increases in raw computational power would aid in overcoming the scaling issues of manual planning calculations. But by the 1990s, computers were the least of the issue, as the fundamental design limitations of a control system for everything broke loose of its moorings. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been ideal. Hello, welcome to the 20th century, 20th, 20, 21st century, the 20th century, which, which century are we on? I'm Hank, we got Adam, we got Nick, we got Noah Hans. The 20th century never ends. It's snowing real bad everywhere that we are, so everybody's donning their fur hats and a pint deep into your 500 milliliters of vodka. Is What are we going to talk about, Adam? Uh, communists. Hate those guys. Well, they gave it a, know, a, good, a good run back in the day. Um, the uh, Chinese sort of kept the name going, but they... They had to uh, throw in the towel as well by the, uh, the end brand. of the 20th century. You keep the brand, you change the formula. Well, I said in the book. In, in many respects, the 20th century never seems to end. But one thing that did end and we don't aren't really dealing with in the new century is communism. That, that shit is over. Or is it? It's it's changed. Uh, it's it's like just like everything in the American way of doing things. It takes its actual form, and then it wears a a, a human suit or a skin suit 
to disguise itself. But um, I think the the Soviet way of doing things is dead. It it just didn't work, um, and I'd like to uh, get into why. Well, I think the uh, the specific... I think that the goals of the founders of Bolshevism are better achieved under liberalism and capitalism than communism at this point. Well, that's kind of the the old. Uh discussion actually um back back in the 50s and 60s that was an actual conversation people were having well you've got a couple of books here that are sort of the uh, the genesis of our conversation uh the first is red plenty which is a very very good uh i guess uh it's kind of like fictional vignettes uh within like a world of stuff that actually happened um, because, of course, you don't know the specific personalities that were involved, but you do have pretty good records about what was occurring. And the other one is uh, From New Speak to Cyber Speak, A History of Soviet Cybernetics. Yeah, and I, I read the former, and I, I found it uh, excellent. I, I think it's it's creative in how it blends the fiction with the nonfiction, but honestly, I'd classify it much more as a nonfiction work because uh, there's a massive amount of uh, work that the author did uh, and that's clearly shown in his references which are actually all um, real Uh, these are real people these are real names these are real books and scientific uh, journal publications and things like that and I think he has a background in economics Um, I don't know too much about the author but uh, the book itself talks about issues that I'm familiar with. Uh, it was, uh, also an education for me as to how a lot of the theories of mathematical programming in particular were applied. Uh, so I, I studied some of this, uh, somewhat formally and broadly speaking, what it means is you're using, uh, a system of equations to describe a complex system and then you use those uh, tools to optimize uh, the uh, the system. And so an example of that would be you've got a set of uh, factories and you want to allocate production between them and you want to minimize something like cost, uh, things like transportation costs. So where do you put the factory? How much uh, production do you do in each one? Uh, and these are actually problems that... Uh, any large corporation has to deal with. But when you scale it up to the size of an entire economy, this is when you're getting into real, um, real math hour. And it's very challenging, um, especially back in a time when they didn't have very sophisticated computers, if any computers. And so the techniques that were developed uh, in the Soviet Union actually were paralleled somewhat in the United States uh, during the the war period, uh, in World War II in particular, and a lot of the innovations that were developed uh, in the United States under the aegis of uh, linear programming in particular, uh, under uh, George Donsig, were actually preceded uh, by his Soviet counterpart uh, prior to the war uh, and then applied uh, after the war, but it, it didn't make much use until afterwards. Um, and so it's, it's quite interesting. And actually a, a lot of these people, uh, involved in these 
developments in mathematical programming uh, ended up winning Nobel Prizes uh, later on. And the, um, the Soviet uh, example, his name was uh, Leonid uh, Kantorovich. He actually, um, he was the only Soviet economist, to my knowledge, that won the Nobel Prize. And so there were, there were some pretty impressive advances uh, that were developed around this stuff. And we can get into the details later. But uh, I, I've always been <clears throat> entranced by this stuff because if you study economics um, in the West, obviously you're going to get the classical school and then the monetarist school, which is essentially uh, analysis on quasi, if not entirely free markets. And the Soviet system didn't work that way. And so what does it even mean when you don't have a free market? Uh, what does it mean when you don't really have price signals? Uh, and this is sort of a concept that's pretty alien to most Westerners where things in the Soviet Union had a price, but they weren't determined by uh, anything that the, uh, the store was determining. It was really, it was all centrally planned. And so the prices often were pretty nonsensical. The classical example was the price of a car was really cheap, but you'd have to wait 10 years to get one because it didn't reflect the actual cost of producing it. Uh, and so there were a lot of shortages. Uh, the concept of inflation was somewhat alien to the Soviets because there was no change in the price typically. Uh, but they had these uh, repressed inflation notions effectively borne out by the shortages. And so it's just a very fascinating uh, real case study of what happens when you don't have that market to change things constantly and actually act as a information source for uh, supply and demand. Uh, and most people find themselves... As an aside, Adam, well, yeah. I just wanted to mention that you know in America today in the current year, uh, have you guys seen the auto market lately? I mean, yeah. you might very well have been better off trying to wait for a state car. Yeah. It's still pretty liquid. You got your ups and your downs. I, I'd recommend going on Craigslist, getting something that's used, and get an auto repair manual. I think that's the best way to go for now. I think the Cuban model is effectively what we, uh, we're working with at the moment. But, yeah. Uh, prices have gone up quite a bit in uh, the auto market for sure lately. What's weird is that there's kind of, it's always easier to look at somebody else's situation and kind of be more objective about it, uh, which is also a great life hack for giving yourself advice or uh, soliciting advice from people incidentally. But if you think about what you do in your day-to-day -day job and what your manager does in his day-to-day -day job and his manager, you have to usually go pretty high and to the right before you actually find somebody that is setting a price from scratch. Like there's this straw man of America as oh, we're the free market and we have all these price signals and that informs how we do our actions. But the day-to-day -day experience of most people certainly working in large corporations, like 
it it really does look extremely soviet like if you work in software you're literally doing like labor value uh labor value calculations and depending on how you roll in your uh product development cycles like you've got your big board of inputs and outputs and man hours uh, especially if you do government contracting who was the economist was it coast or something like that it said that basically corporations effectively turn into like communist organizations yeah coast theorem not turn into like they're founded to be like semi-collaborative semi-hierarchical uh like communist on the inside capitalist on the outside the only difference is that if you live in a communist society there is no outside really until you get into things like international trade well yeah that's why it's like it it made it made like complete sense at the time because like you're some mid-level vp at general motors and the problems that you're facing in terms of optimizing production and uh, allocating resources and doing production runs, they look absolutely identical to the same problems that some mid-level, uh, what's their? Apparatchik. Uh, like Lada executive oh, or yeah. the equivalent. Uh, Auto, Auto Vaz. Uh, I think that was like the post-Soviet equivalent, but yeah, they had, uh, they had like a car company. I don't know if it's a apocryphal or not but i have heard when it comes to you know the international trade situation uh the soviets use sears catalogs as sort of a benchmark <laughs> I, I can't i don't know if that's actually true but i've heard that it's not uh, bad i do want to make the point though, i lot. hope we can all agree that uh the term that you hear like free market capitalist types use of price discovery is a bullshit term we can agree on this yes it, it it depends on the context. Like you do, yeah. I think it prices... depends a lot on like the specific market and like the cadence with which that market runs. If it's a retail or a wholesale market, who your actual customers are. Like yeah, like that that can be a thing. It's definitely a thing in uh, commodities, for instance. Well, I, I think what Nick is getting at is that there is market manipulation for sure uh and nothing is completely free however i would say that there are prices that are adjusting based on supply and demand in addition to uh large supplier manipulation uh nothing is is just derived from heaven i mean we're all sort of these organism organisms and organizations that are fighting for advantage and if there is a disproportionately large entity in that system they're going to have a disproportionate influence over the outcome and it doesn't even require collusion like i understand what you're saying nick like there's no price signal that's coming from like the price of nikes or whatever like somebody just chooses the price and they see how it goes for a while and you have to have some pretty large disruptions yes, before yes. things actually adjust. Like I can, you know, things that I, I track the uh, the price of on the buy and the sell side, even in the context of like, quote unquote, inflation, there are some things where 
certain assemblages of uh, milled steel and injection molded uh, polymer. It's like it's been 500 bucks for like 20 years. And to the extent that their materials costs increase or their labor costs increase, they just eat the margin. But I mean, once you get to a like most of the world is not retail, like the, the world does not care about how how much like a laptop costs because a laptop is not generally a explicit input to something else. It's not really a huge cost center, even usually depending on what you're doing. Like if you look at things where there actually are um, sophisticated, right, if like, we're talking about markets, production, we're talking about capital goods. Yeah. I mean, well, it, if you look at the price of like milling machine cutters, that's something that fluctuates uh, with much more uh, much more frequency than like my MacBook Pro, uh, or you know the the price of uh, like pelleted like high density polyethylene. Like the, these things have have much more uh, much less friction, I guess, associated with the price discovery process. Partly because when you're dealing with professionals on every side, you don't have like Sarah is pissed off that her MacBook Air like costs more now. Yeah. It's like, no, we put on our big boy pants and like the price of plastic went up. We have to figure out what we're going to do about that now. Well, I think it's an interesting concept, though, if you got rid of prices effectively internally, uh, which means... Uh, all the production planning decisions are devoid of prices. And this is what they tried to do in the Soviet Union. And I think they admitted at some point that it's not going to work. Um, but it was, it was very uh, counter-revolutionary to propose the notion of even a concept of a price. And then if you have a price, um, you start looking at things like, okay, how much did I pay for the inputs and how much am I getting for my outputs? And, oh, lo and behold, the difference is called profit. And that's really counter-revolutionary and uh, dangerous in a system like that. And so they had to dance around this notion of, okay, um, well, what is a profit really? Well, uh, we're, we're faced basically admitting that it's, it's an optimal outcome of a production situation where you take X in and you produce Y out. And if Y is greater, at least in value than X, then you've done a good job. Now take the opposite point of view. If you don't care about profits and actually you're actively seeking to destroy profit, you're actually destroying value. And the simple analogy is um, if you've got a, car dealership and you take a take a car off the truck to sell it to somebody and while you're rolling it off the truck you uh you run it into a tree uh you uh you pop a tire uh you smash a window and then you put it on your dealership lot you've actively destroyed the value of that car and you can think of that as sort of a negative profit you don't want any organization doing that you want an organization to improve in other words, add value to whatever your inputs are. And that's that's kind of a basic concept, but if you extrapolate that throughout the rest of the economy, that means you actually are growing. And this is one of the reasons why economies should target for consistent annual growth. And if you 
don't grow uh, actually means you're you're getting worse and worse every year. And so this is uh, this is how sort of the foundations of economics work. But at a micro level, you also need to actually care about a little bit of the value that you're you're adjusting at each step. And so when they were trying to do this uh, without pricing, uh, you effectively start looking at things like uh, quantities. Uh, you know, profit is typically calculated as uh, price times quantity. But if you get rid of that, do you want to say something? Or, or, I keep hearing you. T- yeah, I do. I do. I just wanted. Yeah, sorry. I was waiting. I was waiting for a point to jump yeah, in. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, since we're t- we're talking about the Soviet Union, uh, just for the record, the obviously. You talk about value under a nominally Marxist system. We're dealing with a, a labor theory of value, right? And profit would be is seen, uh, rightly or wrongly, as exploitation of labor. So anything over that is is exploitation of labor. I think that's that's the the idea. I I'm um, I'm actually less familiar with that. I, I've just looked at it from kind of a, a planning perspective and actually how, how you would actually go about this. But I think you're right ideologically. That's kind of the language they would use. Um, I, I'm taking your word for it, frankly, because I, 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 I've never read Karl Marx. I, I think I read part of Das Kapital, but I... Oh, ne- neither did know. the Russians, <laughs> like, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there's all this sort of back and forth about really That's, that's why I said that, nominal, nominal. Yeah. The Soviet it, Union it, was revisionist when it came to Marxism in many respects. Yeah, and this is where you have the tankies flooding your mentions, being like, oh, I think actually you mean state capitalism. Real communism, if you'll recall, has uh, never actually been tried, so... Yeah. Well... But... I mean, a lot of this uh, is like, what is value? It starts to get into metaphysical, metaphysical questions, terminological questions, doctrinal questions. And if you actually live in a party state, like an explicitly ideological state, then those uh, those debates have real world consequences for how you actually structure your economy. No, they they do. Absolutely. And so just getting back to the actual like basic math of all this stuff if you if you again strip out that price component which is uh typically price times quantity minus you know input quantity times price equals profit if you if you take out that price you're basically left with input and output quantities and this is how they were actually planning the system to increase value at each step. And so in other words, your quantities needed to increase effectively from your, your inputs, your outputs greater than inputs. And it, it kind of got goofy when they ran this thing for decades on end because they were still running a factory that was built in the twenties to churn out products that were designed for 1920s problems in the sixties uh, in the seventies and the Brezhnev era, especially where things really started becoming apparent that their polyester clothing was really not keeping up with, uh, the outfits in the West. There was a funny example in, um, red plenty where I don't know if this is true. I, th- I think it actually was based on something real, but, uh, Brezhnev toured the West and he really liked, uh, denim, uh, 
So he was uh, the Jay Leno, I guess, of the era. But he uh, he noticed that their clothing in the Soviet Union didn't have these. It was these... also a symbol of the capitalist West. Yeah, Levi's. It was a big deal. But, I mean, you start to understand why, because their clothing was awful. I mean, it was they would admit it, too. It was, like, made out of plastic, and uh, it, it just it, it didn't breathe. It, it looked terrible. Um, it was basically designed to churn out the minimum definition of a piece of clothing in on paper, but in practice, it was awful. The quality was, was, was abysmal, but on quantity, Hey, we've produced more than last year. So we're doing great. Right. But Brezhnev noticed that they didn't have, uh, the metal like buttons that you would need to make a denim shirt. I guess they had like plastic sewn on buttons or something. So he put in like a, a command to like the steel mill to, to to make buttons or something and so they had to like figure out okay we're we're we we're producing uh you know 10 units of steel this year but now we can only produce uh nine for the regular stuff we have to allocate one for the button uh command from uh, the central command and so uh they would effectively just adjust all the quantities around and then what this meant was, okay, you've got a steel plant. Well, great, but you've also got an iron ore operation somewhere. You've got a coking plant that needs to bring in coal from somewhere else. And so when you make one small adjustment in your gargantuanly centrally planned economy, it affects everything. And this gets to how they would actually run this, the Soviet economy was, uh, there was this organization called a Goss plan plan, I guess, you know, being equivalent to the English uh, word. I don't know what Goss means, but, uh, that, that was the planning division, uh, in Moscow and they, they ran everything. And so they would use this basic, um, uh, Soviet type, uh, planning system. There's actually an entry on Wikipedia about this where they would, they would look at all the available raw materials to the system, country, group of countries, the Soviet bloc. Uh, and then they would, they would see how much of each raw material would be required for their intermediate goods and then their final outputs. And there was, uh, there was actually a system developed by, I think it was, uh, his name was Leontiev. Uh, he developed an input-output model that accounted for internal consumption and then uh, the, the simplest version was there was no consumer. <laughs> it was all just industrial production systems. Uh, so you'd have uh, a chemical plant consuming X amount of oil. And then that chemical plant would produce uh, slightly less uh, plastic. And then plastic would go into uh, the cosmonaut uh, budget. So they would have spacesuits or something. And it would all effectively be industrial stuff. Uh, the slightly more advanced version was you would have leftovers. And this is actually how the Soviets ended up giving out consumer goods where they would have uh, 3% of their, of their budget allocated towards uh, slack. Uh, and if they met their quota and they had a little bit of extra leftover, 
they would hand it out at the department stores to their peasantry. Uh, and so that would be your consumer goods. And this is why... Hey, kids, you want some billet aluminum? Yeah, this is why the Soviet Union was notorious for having empty store shelves, uh, very repressed uh, consumer consumption, and they would have these gigantic military parades of half their economy at one point was estimated to be going into military production where they would have just tanks, tank factories running nonstop, but uh, nobody would have any shoes. And so uh, they actually would model this by inputs and outputs. And you can build this with a large matrix or, you know, they didn't have spreadsheets back then, but you can think of it like a spreadsheet. It was like, okay, each industry gets a column and a row and every interaction in between them is the cells that, that touch. And so to calculate all this stuff, the larger that matrix gets or that spreadsheet gets, the exponentially more computationally intensive it gets. So if you have N number of goods, uh, it starts squaring every time you add something to that matrix. And once you get a large number, and at one point the Soviets were trying to model millions of variables, you have a inordinately computationally intensive problem to solve. And this is really at the heart of why the Soviet Union couldn't really keep up. Uh, they, they simply could not account for the complexity. Hello? You get the brain boys, you get the brain boys and you get them on it. You say to the brain boys that they're to make this work. Uh, and if they don't make it work, you shoot them and problem solved. Duh. <laughs> I well, wanted to just one more point that it is, I think it's an elementary point, but it underpins this entire discussion. And that's the historical context in which this took place. It, Russia was not an industrial power in any meaningful sense by the time of the Bolshevik revolution. No. No. And so, you know, the, the rapid industrialization of Russia under the Soviet system uh, can't be divorced from discussion of, of like problems of uh, large scale planning in the abstract. There's specific historical context to this. And China is a slightly different case, too, because it took in the case of China, it, took even, it was even a more recent phenomenon. And that well, process of yeah, industrialization. Is it, Chinese in some industrialization respects, even more brutal. really only happened in like the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, it, it was after they admitted that this uh, this central planning stuff was was not working out. Uh, and and I'd like to get into China uh, later on. Um, I have a lot to say about it, as does most people these days. But um, you're right. Uh, the early communist experience uh, in China was was abysmal. It was, it, you know, a lot of that had to do with Mao, uh, frankly, just being insane. But uh, they they killed a lot of their population, um, and so did the Soviets. A lot of it was to industrialize, and a lot of it was to focus on heavy industry, which um, some people will argue was actually necessary. Uh, but just just trying to finish up the actually the, the mathematical impossibility of, of this all was the fact that they, they had too many things to account for in one place and to solve that uh, in a system of linear or 
nonlinear equations if you really want to get realistic about it. But they, they couldn't because the, once you start getting actually more nuanced like that, your your math problem explodes. So they effectively ended up oversimplifying the actual economy in order to actually solve, quote unquote, the problem, which created other actual problems. And so they would have uh, something like um, agriculture. So you've got uh, potatoes, but you've got 10 different types of potatoes and they all require different uh, inputs or, you know, for example, you would need soil conditions, uh, water amounts, uh, solar output, things like that. And you couldn't account for this many potatoes because it would make the, the planning problem too hard. And so you'd end up just creating a category called potatoes. And so you'd have this instruction given out to the farmers, okay, make 10 potatoes or 50,000 potatoes. And then they'd be like, well, okay, but my seeds don't grow that well. And under these conditions, it's slightly different. I need to adjust. No, you can't do that comrade because this is the centrally planned system where we've designed or we've arrived at the conclusion that is optimal for the entire population. You don't want to be hurting your other comrades, right? So make 50,000 of these potatoes. So you'd, you'd get these awful looking potatoes that are the size of a your pinky finger and you'd meet your quota. But the quality again, or the price effectively is abysmal. And it's, it's, it's below what any reasonable sane person would recognize. But you had all these awful outgrowths of this one problem they had, which was they couldn't figure out how to produce all this stuff or figure out the plan for producing all this stuff in one place. It's just too hard. And so there was, um, there was just decades upon decades of this stuff. But I think the other thing that this problem uncovered was that when you're a very primitive society uh, or industrially primitive society, as Nick was mentioning, uh, there is relatively speaking a more clear path to follow because you have examples from outside that have demonstrated how things work and the things that they tried that didn't work, you're obviously not going to do that because they're typically not going to do that anymore. So you're, you, all you have to do is copy what they've got. And so there are many stories in the early early days of the Soviet Union where they were actually working with the West. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories that this was like some big uh, attempt to create a, uh, a, a rival and um, forgetting his name, but he, he worked out of Stanford until they kicked him out. But... There was um, there was a lot in the long story short. There were a lot of uh, Western companies like Ford who went over and uh, built factories for the Soviets. Uh, the steel mills, the same thing. Uh, Magnitogorsk was built with a lot of American technicians' assistance, uh, and so you can have a notion of what you're supposed to do early on, uh, and you can you can mathematically describe it all. And one of the interesting things about linear programming is it's on paper, it's actually a very rational way of planning your production systems. Um, the way it works is you have a system of uh, a, a set of constraints, uh, such as, you know, I, I can't produce more than this because these are my physical limitations of a, a factory. Uh, I also have a minimum production target that I want to meet a minimum set of demand that maybe is like a 
the classic problem is uh, the the diet problem. There was a guy named Stigler who uh, actually won a Nobel Prize also for this, uh, and he created the uh, the diet problem. And it's just a good illustrative example of how uh, mathematical programming works. He actually did it before linear programming was formally um, described mathematically, but he, he effectively did the same thing using some trial and error. He just didn't use uh, the simplex method, which was a uh, Donzig's innovation. But the, the problem is this, you've got uh, a, a human and this is uh, just like any system. It, it has requirements. And so a human requires a certain amount of calories, but also a certain level of nutrition. So you could describe that with vitamins and minerals. And these are minimum requirements. Uh, you also have a, a variety of inputs that you could use to try to meet those minimum requirements, but you don't know which is actually the best one to, to use uh, to get your, your requirements. And here's the catch. You could, you could come up with a solution that meets your requirements like most people do. They just kind of like pick and choose randomly at the store and they kind of use intuition. Oh, I, I need something that's green and I need something that's, uh, that's red, you know, some meat. Uh, but they don't really know what the correct proportion should be. And also they don't know what is the optimal proportion, the most correct solution, in other words, in order to minimize their cost which we would all agree, if you could meet all your requirements with the least amount of money, that's better than spending more money than you need to, right? So that's the basic diet problem. And he did this um, back in the 40s. And it's kind of comical because he looked at the current prices of all the things at the grocery store uh, around the country. I think he got some average prices. And then he looked at the recommended USDA levels of nutrition, and he put that all into uh, a system of equations and solved for minimizing his prices. And he was able to come up with a diet that cost uh, $1.50 a day adjusted for inflation, uh, which is pretty cheap. Uh, but here's, here's the humorous part of it. It was a diet consisting of wheat flour, evaporated milk, cabbage, and beans. And this sounds a lot like what the Soviets were eating, uh, interestingly it's, enough. <laughs> it's basically, he invented borscht. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this is like this is just the perfect example of how the Soviet system worked at large because you'd have these, uh, these geeks in Moscow coming up with a mathematically on paper really efficient way to, to feed everyone. But the quality component, again, was really missing. It was like, well... What about if I get tired of this? Or what if it's just disgusting? Uh, you're giving me gruel every day and it's, it's you know, optimal for the, the rest of the comrades that they don't have to pay for my luxurious meal. But um, it really kind of sucks if that's all you have to eat. And so this is uh, how they ran everything. Um, this is a good system on paper uh, and it works, I think, on a certain micro scale. Uh, when you have a fixed model, but it also misses completely, aside from the quality aspects, it completely misses the concept that things can change and get better. Uh, and in the Soviet system, again, going back to like when they started building all these massive uh, pieces of heavy industry, you start developing bureaucracies that start getting defensive and they want to continue the inertia of those 
those bureaucracies that were built up around them. And so they, they, they really lack the ability to account for what's not accounted for on, on the mathematical, uh, equations. And they also can't really, um, adapt very well politically, uh, just internally, like they have a lot of internal resistance to change, uh, to keep up with things like innovation, which require actually closing down old systems and then testing out possibilities for improvements. Uh, that was another yeah. big flaw of the Soviet system. There, there's like a straw man uh, kind of argument against uh, this whole approach. And uh, it, I mean, this is all like, you know, von Mises uh, style, like, oh, you can't possibly know the value of anything if you take that as an input. But honestly, the the calculation problems associated with uh, this whole suite of optimization, uh, it's, it's, I guess, maybe not unfortunate, depending on kind of what kind of world you want uh, to live in. But had things gone like 20 years plus or minus in terms of when they were trying to do uh, specific things or invested a tiny amount more in microchips, it's pretty possible to solve extremely large scale uh, optimization problems uh, with immense facility. Like you're not really bounded on the number of inputs or outputs uh, in any uh, cognizable way, as long as you can actually uh, have some sort of a decent uh uh, a decent objective function that you're pursuing. Well, I think that's the cat, the real catch. I mean, yes, we're also dealing with hardware limitations, I think at a certain point, but I think ultimately it's the modeling problem of capturing yeah. accurately it, your worlds you, you in a simplified mathematical the, form. Yeah. I mean, the, and the Soviets would be the first people to tell you that, uh, well, these economic decisions are political in nature and once you start having uh, political discussions about the metaphysical value of different categories yes. of goods, then you're no longer in a uh, you know a, a classical like Karl Marx like Hegelian utopia of like and then everything will just kind of work itself out uh, by these inexorable materialistic uh, forces of history. Now you're in like, screw Bob, like, why does he get so much? Like, he thinks he's so special making like tank treads when everybody knows that tank armor is so much cooler. Wait, like, you mean, you mean screw, screw Boris? Yes. I mean, Bob, Bob with a, uh, you know, some umlauts or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, it's, the problem yeah. is not necessarily the, the tractability of whatever problem you set up or even how to represent these things. Like again, in any gigantic corporation or consulting shop, you will have like very complex, effective uh, representations of the state of work and what uh, the objective functions are and what the sub metrics are for every minuscule part of these things. And it works well enough that you can have the uh, the utopia that is the current year as a result. 
But if you have every part of this uh, subject to just the proximate political concerns with no sort of overall feedback back into the machine, like basically if your only feedback is a binary, the peasants are revolting, the peasants are not revolting, you don't have a lot of uh, opportunity for the system to adapt because they did attempt to make uh, shifts. They did like say at various points, okay, we're going to invest more in consumer goods. We're going to uh, try to like trade for foreign currency to import some consumer goods. They tried all of these things um, that you can kind of wave your hands and say, well, if done properly, uh, then these are reasonable things to do. Uh, but in the political context, what that ends up doing is threatening various power centers in order to destroy, uh, those power centers. You basically have to wreck your society as currently constituted and you end up with, uh, Gorbachev, uh, 1989, 1991, uh, type scenario. Well, just prior to that, Gorbachev's, uh, I'd like to un go ahead. I just wanted to underpin the point with respect to the political considerations that come with economic planning. You have this line that you get from uh, free market capitalist types where they try to present the market as a some kind of neutral thing. We can talk about when well, we can talk about efficiency of production and this kind of thing, but uh, any form of economic planning is is politically contingent and. You can look at the United States in its in the current year in the 21st century, and look what's happened to the industrial base. You know, look what's happened to small towns. These were planning decisions that people threw up their hands and say, "Oh, it's the mark." You know, you I mean, look at Boeing. There's a whole like, other dimension pick, to this. Like, pick a large company that has fallen into decrepitude like IBM or Boeing or any other number of places. They're still limping along. And well, at, at some point a decision was made to invest in this airframe instead of that airframe. And like, that's, it, it's not like there's metaphysical capitalist magic that makes you have good decisions or put good people in charge of decision making uh, any more than uh, under communist regimes. And in many ways, uh, if you look at the composition of their elites, uh, in terms of the amount of human capital that was available for what they considered socially important uh, problems, it honestly vastly outstripped what was available in similar positions uh in the united states certainly after we uh, depleted our strategic uh strategic national socialist reserve <laughs> i mean i i, no, I but, generally agree but the, end but... the soviet union was was homeless really. i mean that wasn't a thing yes people were in uh slave labor camps but they weren't homeless well, that, that's what I was going to actually bring up was the, uh, the economy, the society that Gorbachev uh, inherited slash uh, became in charge of in the 80s was the sort of 70s era stagnation of the Brezhnev society. However, 
the stagnation of that time was maybe boring, maybe uh, stultifying, but it wasn't that hard. It certainly wasn't the gulag system of the Stalinist era. Uh, It had transitioned through Khrushchev and all the other guys uh, to a much more uh, easygoing society that didn't demand much of its workers. Now, those workers were not paid much, or if they were paid, that money, those kopecks didn't really buy you anything. But life wasn't that hard. It may have been boring. It may have been stifling if you actually had uh, any ambition or a brain, but it was to the point where... It it was very hard if it's like your job is to be a coal miner. uh, uh, Like your your job is to be like Babushka and take the train into Moscow so you can buy vegetables each day. They were given horrible, you know, goulash or whatever every, every day. But you had an apartment. You had a wife. You had... And... I'm not saying I want to live in this society, but there was a certain comfort level that was provided. And that comfort level, I think, multiplied over decades, ended up with the society that they wound up with, which was really falling behind the world. And there's and a yeah, trade offs. I don't want. And, yeah. and, and my, just, my microphone uh, is also getting a little oh, in and okay. out here. So I'm sorry if I, it seems like I'm trying to interrupt. I'm not trying to talk over you, Adam. Sure. Sure. That, that, that's the main point I wanted to make was it just, it was a system that, um, it just didn't demand much and it didn't offer you much either, but it, it was, I think it's a, it's a market contrast to the early days of the, uh, catch up and surpass, uh, slogans of Lenin where they're actually dealing with, okay, do we need to actually reimplement uh, farmers markets in order to stave off starvation? Uh, they, they'd solved sort of that problem. Uh, they weren't starving per se, but they, they just hadn't figured out a lot of the consumer goods. I I have one last example that I think is kind of, uh, funny, uh, and describes the, the life of the Soviet or the, the, the Soviet influence communist system. Um, I used to date a girl from a former Soviet. Make one point before you give your final example. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say with respect to Marxism again, uh, that Marx, it's back to my earlier point, uh, Marx believed that the, that the communist revolution would take place in the industrial countries, uh, that it would take place in England and in Germany. There are other, other considerations behind that too, if you want to get conspiratorial, of course, but, uh, it, he, Marx himself would have been shocked to see the the attempt to implement a communist system from essentially a feudal system. And so, like, the Soviet Union was itself revisionist towards Marxism from the beginning. Yeah, it, it was uh, – couldn't have been further from uh, an industrial society. Um, in fact, I think most countries that became communist were agricultural at least the big ones, <clears throat> but in any case, um, before I forget, the one example I wanted to give was, uh, so I, I dated a girl from a former Soviet bloc country years ago, and she told me um, <clears throat> growing up, one of her friend's dad's job was to stand at a, uh, a checkpoint. And if you've ever seen a movie from 
the Cold War era about the Soviet Union or a country in the Soviet sphere. Uh, this was a thing, and it's not just in film. It was actually a, a thing where there would be this, this guy in a, a big wool trench coat or plastic trench coat. I don't know what they made their trench coats out of, but you know the look. If you see it, you know immediately what I'm talking about. There's a guy with a rifle slung over his shoulder. He's got a big fur hat and a big long trench coat, and he's standing at a gate. And that gate is a piece of wood that stretches across a road, and it's got a red and white stripe pattern to it. And his job would be to stop people from going where they shouldn't go, ostensibly, and and lift the thing up by hand, mind you, when they were allowed to pass. This was his job. This is this is literally his job. He he would stand at that gate and he would lift a board. That's what he did for his his professional career. And I think this just in draws a circle around what your sort of job was or your life was in the Soviet system. You truly were a cog in the machine that was preordained. This is where you're going to stay. This is what you are uh, described as on paper, and you will not veer from this. And the the funny thing was that as, as basic as that is, that this is something that would be, of course, automated by a simple uh, electromechanical uh, device in a, uh, in a, with a motor uh, in the West. Uh, but we needed to give employment to this uh, this person who needed to feed his family. And so the Soviet model was, we're going to give him a job. And it's, as menial as it is, uh, this is going to be what he, he does. And if you compound that across everybody, uh, you are effectively underemploying your entire, or at least a large portion of your economy. Uh, and it turns out, economically speaking, you probably would have been better off just to have that guy sit at home on the dole and have a, a machine do his job and your economy actually would be more efficient and more productive. And this is effectively what happens in the West now. And I'm not necessarily advocating for that either, but I think it's, it, it paints a very clear contrast to how the systems operated where their, their objectives included labor. Um, and I often will say that, you know, we need yeah. more work for normal people. And I, I believe that, but uh, it can be taken to sort of grotesque levels. And I think that that's a good example of it. In America, it's not uncommon if you're driving by what's if you see if there's still like a JC Penney's or whatever that, that still exists in your town. It's not uncommon to see someone standing by the side of the road holding up a cardboard sign. Is that, is it really the contrast? Is it really that stark? Is that a socially productive activity? No, no. I think, I, mean, I think there's many, many better leaders. things we can do with our I, people. Absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm not really seeing it. I'm not seeing the contrast. I, I, I can kind of get Well, I think you're, you're misinterpreting that, what, what I'm saying, Nick. I'm not saying you, you need to have one or the other. I'm saying there are differences in how they operated their, their systems. And that I think that's clear. I think the the choice no made in the West uh, yeah, is we're going to make the guy unemployed because it's more economically productive. And I don't necessarily think that's better either. I, I'd take a guy like that, and I've always said this, give somebody who can't find a job on their own 
and just give him give him a broom and say, look, look, man, we're we're gonna give you you know a place to sleep and something to eat, but just just clean this clean this block up. You know, just do something that'll give you some pride and, and dignity. And this is getting into sort of my you know worldview. I'm not really trying to do that with this episode. I'm just trying to describe how the Soviet system functioned. But um, I think there's many alternatives to what we have in the West. And I'm not holding the West up. And apparently I got some feedback from the last episode that I was like advocating for republicanism or something or cut all the trees down in this timber episode we did. I I wasn't trying to say that. Maybe I miscommunicated, but I don't think I I was making that point. Neither was Hans. Uh, I... I'm I'm describing, I think, different outcomes of reality that have happened, and we have to work within some realistic framework as to how we're going to solve problems. But I'm not advocating for one so let or me re- the other. Let me respond to that too, uh, just for the list for the listeners' sake. I I just want to say this: Adam and I sometimes we have uh, some different perspectives on some of this stuff, but Adam has a very his mind is geared towards things like industry and that's a good thing you need you need people like adam uh, in your society especially if we're going to have a future so uh, <laughs> no, he's, he's not a he's i i i am deeply anti-capitalist i will say that out, outright I, I i think capitalism is an immoral system uh that being said i would not i would i would not call adam a capitalist show not yeah. just because he's my friend. I, I think that that's a misunderstanding of where he's coming from. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, and I don't think, um, you know, your perspective is any less valuable. Um, at the same time, I, I appreciate the, the guy who actually questions a lot. And you've taught me a lot about questioning a lot of the things that I take for granted, which is good. Um, a lot of people don't like to be challenged. And, and I, I will, admit as just you know a human that i don't want to be wrong but i also don't want to be wrong and so if i'm i'm wrong i i want to be challenged and and pointed out alternatives um i think what's interesting about the soviet system was and and nick is correct i i do like industry i like to see activity and and however that activity has to be useful it has to be for a greater good. It can't just be work for work's sake. I think work, make work is actually somewhat of a problem. Um, I think that we should have a guy whose job it is to work the angle grinder at the steel mill. And it's, <laughs> it's really like, he's not so much making anything so much as putting on a show. Yeah. Cause it really sets the vibe appropriately when you've got the shower of steel sparks going into, going into nowhere at the mill. <laughs> I've, um, funnily enough, literally I've, the first thing that comes to people's minds when they think of industry <laughs> sparks in, in, in a dimly lit room. Absolutely. I, I was actually, I took a, uh, took a couple courses post postgraduate education on my own, uh, at a trade school. And I wanted to actually see how this stuff, uh, worked and it was great. I, I took a couple of trade school classes and, uh, Super useful stuff. And and this is stuff that I, I thought was most lacking in my high school curriculum because they got rid of all the shop classes. At, at the time, I didn't really care. But in, in retrospect, I really, uh, I don't know if resent is the right word, but I wish we had an auto class. I wish we had a wood shop and everything. We didn't have any of that. So I ended up doing that on my own. But the funny thing is, I I didn't take the welding class or whatever it was, but 
uh, or metal shop. I don't know what the class was, but there was a uh, a section outside the building where they had like a row of uh, students and their job literally was that to hold an angle grinder and to cut uh, like a piece of sheet metal in half. And it was like obvious to me that these guys were really desperate and they didn't have much else going on in their life that they needed to be taught how to hold an angle grinder, which is basically a spinning wheel that cuts things. Uh, or grinds things, as the name would indicate. Uh, and they had to take a class for that. But it was like, it, it literally had the imagery of what you're describing, where there were sparks going in the air, you know, on a two-dimensional plane. And it, it just looked perfect. They had their little coveralls. And um, and that was the Soviet system. And that's what sort of is interesting about it to me, was it was like, they prioritized industry. They really thought that was going to be in the long run, like they're going to repress consumption and reinvest that into the future. Uh, and, and they really thought that was the way to go. And it, and it worked for a while. It really did. It, it, it produced perfectly on paper and in practice what they set out to do. The problem was later on, it ended up not keeping up with what they should be doing, but they were able to produce a system that worked and it was very interesting to me at an early age as to how they were able to do this. And it was very appealing to me at an early age uh, that they were able to do this. And it really was, and other people have said this, it was sort of a, a society run by engineers. It was an engineer's paradise in the sense that this is the first time in human history, and this is uh, a point made by Red Plenty, I think this is the fictionalized portion of it, but you can imagine how this would happen. I know this happened actually in China where they interviewed a, a lady who was participating in the construction of the Three Gorges Dam, uh, the largest hydroelectric facility in the world. Uh, they, they asked her, you know, how do you feel about, you know, working on this project? It's like, I feel great. You know, my country is, you know, leading the world in, in the most, you know, impressive uh, civil engineering project in history. I'm extremely proud to be part of this. Um, you can think of that same feeling happening in the Soviet era and in the, we will bury you era with Nikita Khrushchev banging his shoe on the podium at the UN about how they're, they're meeting their production targets. They're growing faster than any other economy in the world at the time with, with, with I think, I think the exception was Japan. Uh, but other than them, the Soviets were actually growing and, they had a system that was working uh, until it, it stopped. But I've always been drawn to the concepts of how did they actually pull that off. And, and some of the concepts were quite, quite valid. Uh, the question was, were they sound on a long-term basis? And, and arguably, they, they weren't um, at a certain point. But on some levels, they did, on a GDP per capita basis, they did actually grow very quickly. They were able to keep up with a lot of the capitalist nations and do it in a way that in some sense was more equitable. Again, the example of the guy, you know, lifting a, a two by four up every day. Uh, could he keep up? Would he be homeless in the West? I don't know. I, I, I would, I would hope not. And, and with a more balanced system, probably not, but you don't know. And it did keep some people from falling behind or becoming homeless as Nick is saying. Uh, so there were some good things about it. And on a intellectual level, it was always very interesting to me how this stuff worked. And there were some advances as pointed out 
earlier on with the mathematical programming stuff that were implemented and proven to be uh, useful. Um, problem is at scale and over a long time scale as well, the, the issues cropped up. And at some point, I'd like to bring up China because China has taken a slightly different course, if not a very different course, and had our arguably much more success than the Soviet system. And they still maintain the, the notion of being a communist nation. But there were some very important differences. And when we get a chance, I'd like to bring that up. But turning it back over to you guys. Um, maybe, Hank, you could bring up the cybernetic stuff because I didn't, I didn't cover that in my, my reading. Yeah, I mean, the question arises when you're uh, optimizing these systems. Like, it wasn't like nobody realized that you don't want to have a spreadsheet of millions of cells and then have a bunch of grad students wasting their time on just doing computations. Uh, you want, ideally, systems of more nuanced feedback and control. And this was something it was really an intellectual uh, movement that was horribly ill-defined uh, on every side and in every place um, but essentially the idea of how do you encode systems of feedback and control into uh, these social systems that uh, perhaps mirror at least on a metaphysical level the uh, the feedback systems that you see, for instance, within a human body, um, where if you hold your hand close to a stove, like you get a signal that tells you you need to please withdraw hand from stove. Uh, rapidly, it becomes uh, less uh, less polite and more insistent in doing so until it's functioning completely automatically. Uh, that was sort of the the dream that you would have a self operating in some sense uh, society where you would avoid um, some of the more obvious points of overhead of capitalist society, like the need to advertise goods or have uh, multiple competing uh, smaller scale uh, production runs of uh, almost interchangeable goods. Like that was the thesis for the uh, the overtaking hypothesis that well you've got two factories but if I made one gigantic factory then I could have two and a half times the output just because of the economies of scale involved uh, so it's it's again something where the political imperatives developed a set of technical tools that did essentially what was asked of those tools but most technical problems are really social or political problems uh, and you can't fix a uh, social or political problem with a uh, technical solution uh, with the with the obvious uh, exception of when uh, when things go south and you you end up with several megatons of technical solutions to political problems. Well, I, I think the uh, the Strains analog or a technical solution of political problems. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, more and more, more and more uh, edge cases and exceptions here. I don't know if uh, really that's a great rule anymore. 
I think the the megaton analogy is apropos because the the Soviet way lives in every society to different degrees. But I think in the West or in America, especially the war war economy, the military industrial complex, as everybody will call it, is a centrally planned system. They have oh yeah, and military like the, contractors. They have uh, like World War Two and Vietnam were uh, perfect case studies of this. I mean, World War Two, you basically had the full might of the uh, the American continent, really dictated by dudes with slide rules and org charts and uh, the. Uh, localized equivalent of spreadsheets doing exactly that that was what george donsick the guy who came up with the simplex method uh, a big part of linear programming today was working on during the war he was effectively working in production planning and logistics decisions for the war department as they called it back then more accurately and and all of these things as the cold war advanced look at robert mcnamara yeah robert mcnamara but also he was a whiz kid people that got even spookier with it like um all of the uh the sage uh systems um all of the uh simulations of uh simulations of nuclear war of actually fighting world war three were all heavily dependent on uh this sort of notion of central planning of like bulk uh bulk feeding of people and material into the war machine Mm -hmm. and when these things were actually operationalized as they were in vietnam you saw uh you saw this develop more explicitly with the notion of things like the body counts um, or the notion of uh, these bombing runs as uh, signals that were meant to be interpreted by the North Vietnamese or Chinese or Russians or whoever they thought that they were uh, metaphysically right. signaling to. Well, that's a good example they, of modeling and where a model on paper, again, can be optimized. You can optimize any mathematical system, but doesn't mean that that system is correct. The assumption that they made was that attrition was going to win the war and it didn't work. That was the critical flaw. The model was incorrect from the beginning. So as my one of my statistics professors used to say, garbage in, garbage out. He wasn't the person to coin that, but it came up because you know we're describing systems with mathematical precision but if you've built a model of something that doesn't matter you can do it as well you as you want it it, it, it's irrelevant um so right and i mean that's that's what i mean when i say that there was an expectation through a lot of the cold war that and especially more in the first part i would say that essentially these systems were convergent this was the same time period in the West where you had the rise of the conglomerate, which is like this gigantic faceless, uh, faceless corporation that internalizes, it internalizes all of its capital flows. Like that's the point of having a conglomerate that you have this internally productive, uh, economy where all of your, divisions are sending uh, capital and inputs uh, to all the other divisions 
in order to optimize for your aggregate uh, production output, your aggregate profits in that case. But I mean, these are semantic differences at best for the same uh, concept. And considering like the people that were in charge of the United States as of 1945 were basically a collection of insane communists with an ideology that was very lately distinguishable, if at all, um, from outright Stalinism. It's, you know, their, their preferred vision for the United States was basically Stalin's Russia plus, like, we have slightly better cars and clothes. And the strategic necessities uh, and the political necessities in the United States of prosecuting a Cold War ironically prevented a lot of those uh worst tendencies of the American uh, governing elites from reifying because it turns out like you actually can make a super productive, super efficient war machine with capitalist uh, capitalist methodology in the context of these uh, these grand strategic feedback plans. And so you want to leverage those. Um, and now you've got a startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley based on uh, creating vacuum tubes for uh, aerospace defense uh, and offense programs that now is driving like this weird microchip thing that was invented uh, in order to fulfill a contract for uh, ICBMs that could undergo intense acceleration. Suddenly you're selling these things on the side uh, to your university departments that are trying to use them to have these survivable networks so that you can still send around scientific papers after the Harvard University campus has been gracelessly wiped off the math by nuclear fire. Pretty soon you got eBay. <laughs> but like at every step in this, uh, it was sort of a, uh, a tactical... Uh, difference of approach in the context of an overall system that saw this approach of a command economy with planned inputs and outputs and localized feedback systems as a reasonable way to structure uh, anything in particular. Now we find ourselves without a real uh, strategic uh, competitor that has actual uh, designs or at least where we can impute designs of world domination upon them uh, all of those worst impulses of command and control and making the entire system so serve the political goals of the state that is now completely uh, metastasized in American society to the point where I've talked with numerous people that have experience living in ideological states that note that the United States spends far more time promoting uh, diversity and inclusion in random uh, putatively private contexts than the Soviet Union at its peak spent uh, discussing communist uh, ideology on the shop floor of some random factory. Well, and I, and I know I get some pushback for maybe overusing this example, but if you, again, watch that Yuri Bezmenov lecture from 1987 or whenever the hell he did that wearing his leisure suit, 
Um, he talks about how this is how you cripple your enemy. You you give their, I don't know, uh, disgruntled population groups something to um, advocate for that is ultimately a complete waste of time. And you consume the gears with sand in doing so. Uh, he mentioned all the liberation movements, uh, women's lib, uh, kid lib, whatever that means. But I guess that was the Ginsburg thing. Kill your parents. Pedophilia. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, nowadays, exactly. And it, it distracts and it, it redirects so much energy of our population. It's the diversity tax, basically. It's like how much time do I have to sit in this stupid PowerPoint presentation about being nice to my coworker where I wasn't being mean to begin with? And really, what are we doing here again? Aren't we supposed to be making widgets and not talking about how uh, to police our tone? Um, it, it really is a way to, yeah. to cripple <laughs> a society. I, I have pushed back on that. I'm going to push back on it again. Uh, for the record, it, yeah, first of all, he was an op and he was playing into the fundamental conceits of the American Cold War right, that it was this communist threat that was subverting America. When if you want to talk about something like women's lib, that was a creation of the capitalists. The, the enemy was already fundamentally inside of the system, the spiritual and ideological enemy of our people. And it wasn't it wasn't an external threat. It was, and that was the kind of thing that uh, the uh, Brezhnev. How do you say what is Bre, uh, Bezmenov? Bezmenov, yes, Yuri, yeah, Yuri Bezmenov. Yeah, that's the kind of thing he was playing into. He was a minor, uh, minor celebrity among sort of the John Birch types yeah. in the Cold War. I, I agree. It wasn't yeah, just uh, from the outside. Good reason to believe I, I agree it was an that. op. Well, but this, this, the reason I'm, it's not just a. He doesn't matter, right? In the big picture, like. But what matters in this, the context of what we're talking about today is the extent to which the myths of the myths, some of them, you know, there's in myth, you have truth and falsehood, the myth of Soviet. So the inefficiency of, of Soviet central planning uh, used as a way of propping up, uh, ideologically propping up the capitalist system of the West. Uh, this is an this has been an old hand has been really a major story of the Cold War. And you, you got to look at the reality of this stuff shorn of the myths from the American right wing um, who are, have been you know, chasing around their tails for half a century or more. Do you, do you want to talk briefly about China? Yeah, I, I do. That's um, the one that's contemporary, right? That's well, the one because nowadays there's a lot of his hysteria with yes. respect to uh, russia yes of course political hysteria well but I, I, outside of msnbc in the beltway i think communist. nobody takes that seriously i think i think china is much more well yeah but we, we have similar political hysteria with respect to china yeah. however you have a lot more of that old cold war economic dialectic where it's you know the communist chinese and 
you know, you have American right wingers all the time giving very similar talking yep. points to the ones that they were giving about the Soviet Union during the Cold War. They are. So let's I, I th- let's, uh, let's I th- close out on China. I think you're right. I think it's it's a good uh, analogy. I think, however, you know, Sean Hannity or Alex Jones or whatever talking about the Chai Comps, it doesn't have the same resonance that it did because there's just less credibility to the argument. And and I completely agree. I think the sort of maybe straw man of using the Soviet model uh, to to really in, endorse the capitalist alternative, I think was a thing. I think that was something that was propped up, pushed forward, and, and the left of the day probably was right in some ways in saying that this is a little bit overdone. Um, however, the Soviet system was not working. China did the Soviet system. It didn't work, and they had to admit it. And Tiananmen Square, as much of that as uh, of that was a CIA op, there was some legitimate questions in China at the time after the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc was breaking up is that, well, what do we do now? And the Chinese course was a diversion from their decades of trying Maoism, obviously, which was a complete effing disaster, and Stalinism prior to that, which also didn't quite work as well either. They adopted a mixed political economic system that incorporated a centrally governed political system with a not decentralized economy, but a much more decentralized system than the Soviet system that also, and this is, I think this is the key difference. Well, there's a lot of, a lot more, but I think the, on paper, again, the, the key systematic difference that the Chinese diverged from the Soviet system was that they targeted the export market. And I think that was a very wise decision in addition to not decoupling their political system from uh, Beijing uh, and making it democratic. They they held the reins much more tightly than the, than the Soviet perestroika system uh, did. They targeted the export market, and what they what that did was that actually gave them the feedback loop that Hank has mentioned a couple times that the Soviet system was lacking. They were ex- suddenly exposed to global, whether it's market or not, but they were exposed to the to the to the global system in a way that actually taught the Chinese what they were good at and what they weren't good at. And in doing so, they were able to prioritize and cast away things that weren't working anymore. Um, and that's the same thing that most of East Asia, frankly, has done. Uh, the Korean model, the Japanese model, and the Taiwanese model you know, prior to the, the opening of China to the world market was effectively this they would keep a lot of the uh the labor market and the internal uh trade market closed to foreign competition but they would they would compete very vigorously on the global market and they had to then really prioritize and streamline all their industries so that they could compete and the chinese did the same thing and they, they added advantage of china in addition to the general high IQ disciplined workforce of East Asia was that they had a huge population. And so the 
almost never ending supply of cheap labor, which was also high functioning and discipline was never seen before in any other country. And the Soviets, as much as they, they attempted and they achieved in the science and engineering aspects of their educational system, the Russian workforce is just not the Chinese workforce. Um, they're, they're much more difficult people. They don't seem to, you know, work like ant, ant hives like the, uh, the Chinese do. And so they, they could never really compete on a global export market basis uh, with the exception of raw materials, which really is not something that you are adding much value to. Frankly, you're just, you either have the materials, you have the raw, the natural resources, or you don't like, you know, take a look at Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. I mean, these countries are not uh, burgeoning with human capital necessarily, but they ha- they're burgeoning with, with natural resource wealth. And the Soviets actually were able to limp along, actually probably much more longer than they would have if they didn't have that oil. Uh, but the Chinese never had that, and really it's their human capital component and also their exposure to the, the global uh, marketplace that I think set them apart. And they were able to compete because of that cheap labor and that disciplined workforce uh, much more effectively than the Soviets. Um, however, the, the Chinese system still is very centrally planned uh, compared to much more of the, the, the Western broader economy uh, and how it functions. And they, I think, are running into some problems. Uh, this is not, not, nothing new from anybody who's watching the financial press these days, but they're running into issues uh, in their economy finally, I think, uh, that are, are going to be a long-term problem for them. Um, the export market for China was was genius because uh, because they had such a large labor pool, they could effectively take over the industrial base of the entire planet. And that, that's an exaggeration, obviously. But I mean, one of the statistics I've cited many times before is that the uh, actually at the time of 9-11, uh, and I've mentioned this as well, uh, the Chinese were net importers of steel, which is mind-bogglingly astounding if you look at where they are today. But they were actually buying up the, the scrap metal that was uh, sold by the uh, duplicitous Americans to them after 9-11 because they needed to feed their their steel mills and they were actually buying steel from the United States up until probably the mid-2000s. Uh, but today, the Chinese consume um, and then produce uh, the iron ore and then the, the final outputs of uh, you know rolled uh, you know cold and hot uh, steel products. They produce half of the entire planet's steel, uh, and a lot of that goes into and this gets into the the, the final point. Um, so the, the export market was was great, but it, it reached a certain point where they, they have diminishing returns. Like you can't produce the entire planets of everything. I mean, you guess you could in theory, but uh, you know, then the other economies can never pay you back. And so they've reached kind of a point where the export market was running out of steam and they, they have these uh, internal growth targets that they give out to their um, city managers or province managers that they're rewarded uh, politically for economic growth. So once you run out of uh, runway on the export market, once you've produced basically everything that's made and or sold in Walmart, where do you go from there? Well, what they decided to do, and which this is what the Japanese ended up doing, and this is actually ended up becoming a problem for the Japanese and then also 
in the United States as well with the property bubble, the Chinese went into property. So a lot of that steel actually goes into construction of these high rise apartment buildings. And people were saying this 10 years ago and they were too early, but, uh, they were saying basically that a lot of these, uh, buildings are, um, are not being used. And that was correct. And, and it still is correct. Uh, but the counterpoint to that was, well, China's got a billion plus and most of them still live in the rural areas. And so they, they need somewhere to live. And that's true. And the, the, there was an analysis done that the, the peasantry still, you know, could use quite a bit more housing that they currently have. And they, they live in these poorly constructed, uh, very primitive houses out in the provinces, but in the urban areas, um, the places quite frankly, just overbuilt. And I don't remember off the top of my head, but the, the number that I saw when I was looking at this Evergrande, uh, disaster, which is one of their largest property developers was that, if the uh, the annual uh, inventory that they're adding, not just Evergrande, but just Evergrande is, is an example of this type of uh, development company in China. Uh, if they're adding uh, annually the amount of apartment buildings um, for the foreseeable future, they're, they're putting on, on inventory something like uh, 120 million units every year. And it doesn't take a genius to sort of see that, you know, after 10 years, you've run out of apartments for the entire population. And the fact is they've been doing this for decades. And I think the statistic also is that the current uh, population that owns these apartment buildings, not only are they not occupied, but they're unoccupied three times over. So it's typically the middle or aspirational classes of the coastal uh, populations of China that buy these things as investments. They don't trust the stock market for whatever reason. And so they, they buy real estate. And so there are something like three apartments for every investor now, uh, that are unoccupied and the, to the credit of the Xi regime, I think they recognize that this is unsustainable. And so they actually try to preempt this bubble from getting even more insane um, and this was, I think about a year ago, they started doing this and this started having really bad knock on effects in the Chinese financial system where these, uh, over leveraged development companies were being told that they, they couldn't, uh, continue to borrow. And then they, they had to stop construction and they couldn't meet their, uh, their targets. And so they were going into insolvency. And I think it was kind of a game of chicken and G is sort of more of a, old school, relatively speaking, communist than some of the more recent guys that have uh, been in there before him. And so he's like, well, you know what, uh, business sector, I don't care. You know, you're going to, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Uh, and they, they started doing that, but I think recently they actually started pulling back because they started, um, or Beijing, that is, they started seeing how badly it was, uh, scaring the Chinese financial market. And so they've re-upped uh, the lending targets again for the uh, the banks that they actually do control quite heavily for the uh, the property market. So they're 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 still going into this insane construction uh, boom, which makes up I think about a quarter, if not a third, of their economy. And they're they're trying to make it work. I don't know how long it's going to happen. I mean, again 
10 years ago after the American uh, property bubble, people were going over to China saying this is Dubai times a thousand. That was the famous Jim Chano's quote. Uh, and some of that is true, but you know, 10 years plus later, uh, it, it still hasn't exploded. And so I don't know how long this is going to continue, but what, what's interesting about China is that it's not, it's not the same as the Soviet Union. They've obviously lasted a lot longer with, uh, I think much more economic success and political success because they've, they've had a con continuity of their government, but there are there are signs of of cracks at the moment and i'm i'm curious to hear what you guys think about the longevity of this this system going forward in china and is it a model to be emulated well, or studied funny. i've actually been um so if you want a we're talking about you know the the social costs and consequences of you know, the economic questions, economic planning, and also of, you know, China's recent participation over the past few decades in international capitalism, uh, put, you know, post Deng Xiaoping. I've been watching this, uh, the films of this Chinese filmmaker. His name is uh, Jia Zhang Qi, or Zhang Qi, uh, spelled Z H A N G K E, I believe. Uh, I just watched one last night, actually. And he's a sort of a, a social realist uh, filmmaker. And I had a little bit of tensions with the state, but for the most part, he's uh, more or less endorsed. Uh, he, you know, works works well enough with the state. They they allow his, his films to be made, but they are they're very interesting. If you want an artistic perspective, I mean, it, a lot of it is going to be very foreign in the sense that it, these are really films about Chinese people. Uh, but there's a lot that's will be will be intelligible to a, a viewer in the West uh, if you at least understand a few basic things. Like the Three Gorges Dam makes a lot of appearances as sort of a background subtext in his films. Uh, the one I watched last night was a film called A Touch of Sin, and it was a sort of anthology film that dealt with these kinds of the kinds of things that are brewing underneath the surface in China. Uh, in the case of the, that film, it has a lot to do with with violent, the violence that's, that's underneath the surface. Uh, in other words, Ash is the purest white, and they take place in a lot of the kind of far further flung regions of China. And the you know, plot lines like, for example, uh, the previously state, totally state run mines being basically privatized and the, the former sort of higher up apparatchiks becoming um, capitalist rich in the sense, you know, and the Chinese do have, there's a very materialistic strain, I think, in the Chinese people. And you see that also. It, it If you're interested, I do recommend. Uh, I just I thought I'd mention that because it's funny. I've been that's I've been watching this lately. And, what 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 is what is yeah, the no, mood in your in your opinion of the Chinese uh, movie watching audience or the filmmaker at least of the prospects for their society? Um, I, I mean, I think it's very clear in America. I mean, Hollywood is sort of a distortion of reality, obviously, but the tone of the average American moviegoer is probably somewhat glum and akin to maybe the seventies where they're going to these movies to escape from the reality. But I think in China, it's probably more of a glorification of where they've 
been able to, to well go that's in the, the past thing there's decades. i've watched some other some some chinese movies are totally insufferable the ones that are like crass propaganda made for the chinese masses uh really right. bad stuff right they're not as hostile to their own to the to the people as for example films coming out of hollywood which are right. the same way it's not like right. hollywood it is not uh, crass and, what do you think of ip man uh, but they're not I you know they try to chinese cinema but that, uh, that yeah, man, of, I'm yeah. a, okay. That's funny. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Donnie Yen. I love fight movies. Oh yeah, that's, I, I yeah. like one of my happy places I go to. I love like eighties and oh, they're they're fun. But movies. the politics could, is very it's, clear. It's totally outside the scope of this show. But yeah. I could do a whole a whole show talking about like Sammo Hung and Donnie Yen and, <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, but Ip Man. So of course I've seen all of the Ip Man films, at least all the Donnie Yen Ip Man films, and they're great fight movies. But the, the propaganda, especially is so the anti-Western and anti-Japanese, anti-Japanese propaganda, is well, hilarious. Yeah. yeah, it is so car. And then they get Scott Atkins, who I'm also a big fan of, to come out and, uh, you know, and that's a that's a mark of honor as far as like being a um, a, a fight movie guy to go to Hong Kong uh, and do fight movies is is you know that props to Scott Atkins, but he plays he goes and plays these really cartoon villains in uh, like Wolf Warrior and. Uh, I think it was Ip Man Four that he's in, but uh, the films that I'm talking about that I that I op- started what I was saying with uh, these socialist realist films, uh, these are not mass media. These are more like art house films. They're they're not like niche art house films. They're very serious art house films that are they're not going to be for the masses. Uh, they're but if you're curious, I think they're they seem to be a very honest portrayal because. They clearly come from a, a place of, you know, compassion uh, for his, for his people, and they're they're very much skirting the line of what level of ex- of criticism is acceptable of the of the regime. Uh, so what what are the that, critiques? You know, lot, it's very Chinese uh, that capitalism is creeping in and destroying the the social fabric and leading yeah, to okay. alienation is a fundamental critique. I mean, that it, that it's, that people are being displaced. Things are becoming uh, driven by, by wealth obsession and it's, it's harming uh, the rural areas, the places that were formerly basically, you know, set up under the old regime. I mean, this is in Russia. You saw this with a lot of these towns in the far North or towns. I mean, <laughs> we call them what you will, but places that were set up for industrial production, Mm-hmm. that are now essentially deserted uh, similar pro- process happening in china where you know they're no longer useful and the state's not in the, and then this but then the state makes sort of performative efforts to seem like it's interested in this uh there's a lot to dig into there but yeah it is a it's a it's they're fundamentally critiques of uh, modernism and capitalism of the internationalization you know of china um, internal migration is a big theme. Uh, yeah, you know, there's references to the Foxconn factory suicides. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, just it, 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 they're it, they're interesting films. Uh, if you have enough interest in the subject, I I do recommend them. Interestingly enough, the Western uh, system press uh, is very fawning over them, which I'm not sure how I would explain that exactly, other than the fact that. They want to be able to say good things about non-whites, you know, uh, or maybe they, they're, I, I don't know. 
I don't know. But if you look at, like the New York Times type, the highbrow like uh, New Yorker, all that kind of shit, uh, you know, they're gonna say really good things about about his films. He's been very well received, which is interesting. But I would just honestly just ignore that. And if you're interested, watch the watch his films. Touch of Sin, uh, Ashes, the Purest White, uh, Platform, The World. These are these are worth watching if you want to kind of get a window into what's going on in the in the in the Orient and there's some definite similarities too. I mean, there what's, I think what's really striking when I watch these films is that there's no corollary in the West in America. Like you don't see it much every now and then maybe there's, there's been some films out of the UK over the past couple decades that sort of get to it, but uh, nothing there's not, and especially not state sanctioned, you know, films or at least state approved. None of that. It's, uh, it would be more heretical if you, if you were as honest as I think he's being about America, as he's being about China, um, you would find yourself uh, out of a job and worse. Yeah. Hank, what are your thoughts on China? Don't like him. If you were if you were if you were Chinese, what what would you think about China? Let's put it that way. It's uh it it's a complicated place. Um it remains to be seen kind of if they're going to be able to get out of they they call it the middle income trap. Uh it's because of the the way that the political situation mediates the way that their society evolves as well. Like it seems to be more and more that, um, G kind of, uh, ends up going a uh, kind of boomer mode and just like picks some sector that is, uh, sort of filling him with boomer rage, like, you know, these kids on their video games or, Nancy boys on the TV and shut it down. Uh, and he has the uh, formal and informal power to accomplish that. And uh, there's kind of an open question as to what sort of society that actually leaves you with, uh, because I don't think that it's sufficient to have merely the things that the government thinks are measurable and uh, legible uh, and important to the government to be the overall goals of your society. Um, so it's, I think that it's, it's difficult to say kind of how that plays out in the longer term because they're very young a country uh, in terms of their, uh, their contemporary uh, political, social, economic arrangements. Um, in many ways, one of the youngest uh, countries in the world. So it's, it's something that fills me with a little bit of apprehension because when you do have a country that uh, stagnates like that, um, that can lead to some very unfortunate sort of internal political uh, developments. And conversely, if you feel the need uh, to sort of um, 
go out of your way to piss off your neighbors, uh, for instance, which they really seem to be doing to a uh, degree that's far more than necessary. Um, I'm not really sure about kind of the uh, the strategic imperatives that seem to be driving this uh, immediate uh, pattern of behavior. So uh, apprehensive, I guess, is the 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 longer answer. Uh, don't like them is the shorter. Yeah. Well, I I think we should try to bookend it a little bit. I mean, we're uh, we're really talking about the Soviet idea that you could capture your entire society on a blackboard, use rationality and rationale to solve the social and political and economic problems that your society is facing and then derive a solution to achieve a better outcome in future. And I think that's, it's a very ambitious idea to say the least. Uh, it's a very intoxicating idea. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a bad idea, but I think without a dose of humility, I think it is a dangerous idea. If you do not accept the possibilities of, uh, being wrong and, also being able to admit fault. And I think that's one of the issues with central planning is that you end up with political power centers that are very resistant to change and admitting mistakes. And if you give them central and ultimate authority over large sways of your society, they actually can defend themselves quite effectively to the point where your society suffers. And so I think, centralization is inevitability if you're looking for on paper efficiency, but it becomes a self-fulfilling system that may not have anything to do with efficiency at a certain point. And so I think the lesson here is that a balance with decentralization and power is necessary for your society to survive and whether or not the system incorporates that into its design is maybe irrelevant because at a certain point things fall apart and it's almost inevitable that people are going to make mistakes and do things wrong. And whether it's addressed now or later uh, is really the question. And I think the question is, do you want to do it now or later uh, if you have the choice uh, and having that choice is always somewhat academic for most people, but maybe my message to the rulers is to maybe just have some humility and, and take stock in the fact that you're never going to get it perfect. Uh, and admitting that you've got, uh, got a change or we need to change society is, is nothing, um, to be ashamed of. And I think it's maybe something to be proud of. And this is perhaps a lesson from the, uh, the more successful companies of our era that incorporate this into their, their cultures that they need to talk about, uh, maybe not so much where they're doing it right, but maybe where they're doing it wrong and how they can improve. And I think if you look at a lot of the patterns in successful organizations, I think that is a consistent one. I'll be brief. I just, I'd say, I said it before, but somebody is going to be doing the planning, whether 
private or state in any large scale and in industrial society. What is that word again? Uh, somebody's gonna be doing the planning, and I would just I would just say that there's no currently existing state apparatus or system uh, of an in industrialized society at scale that has been that is able to balance the social costs with some something resembling efficiency efficiency and smoothness and rationality or whatever you want to say of production and obviously my position is that the the social that the pro-social interest should be the priority of, of planning